Hi, my name is Stephen Newton. And I'm Stephen Payne. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Black Ink Red Film. So in Black Ink Red Film, we're going to be taking a look at famous horror and sci-fi novels, how they eventually translated into horror and sci-fi films, and then looking at the pop culture impact and legacy they had afterwards. If you enjoy listening to podcasts that discuss books about horror and sci-fi, then this is a podcast for you. We really hope you'll join us. Look for Black Ink Red Film on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts at. what we're doing here or what I'm doing here or what this place is about but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix and Book Club podcast. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me, as always, is the luminescent Jeff Goad. Hello, everyone. And this week, we have the exact opposite of luminescent. The Dark Master, Joseph Goodman, is our special guest. Hi, guys. How's it going? <laughs> Such an honor to have you here. Uh, this week, we're reading The Moon Pool, but before we get into discussion of the book, I would like to ask you, Joseph, about your general background in gaming and specifically how you came to Appendix N. Sure. Um, I'll give you the short version and feel free to, you know, jump in and ask questions if you want more. But, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've played games my whole life. My family in, uh, was the type that was always playing Scrabble or Risk or something like that at all the family reunions. And so there were just always games in my life. And then as a kid, I got into D&D. You know, I don't even remember where. I remember my first game was on the back porch, on the steps of the back porch with my brother and one of the neighborhood kids. Um, and we had the rules all wrong. I remember thinking that for hit dice, if a monster had like 8d8 hit dice, that was what you rolled to attack. And if you beat the other guy's armor class, then you beat them. And so the monsters won every encounter in my first game. Uh, I mostly remember having, you know, like all of us, being completely confused by the rules until somebody eventually told me how to, you know, despite reading the book, told me how to actually play the game. So you actually um, invented Tunnels and Trolls, actually, rather than d d <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, I just played versions of D&D for many, many years. I went through a Warhammer 40,000 phase, you know, and, and then it's been many years. Some electronic games along the way, Sega Genesis, you know, Mario, all that stuff. Um, and then uh, I think your second part of your question was about Appendix N. Yeah. Um, yeah, the... Uh, it's funny. Somehow my whole childhood never involved reading fantasy literature for whatever reason. I saw my share of movies and read plenty of you know, sci-fi books, but just never encountered fantasy. And I guess I would have been grown up in you know, the sort of 80s when there wasn't this, you know, Robert E. Howard was basically out of print at that time. There wasn't mm-hmm. this sort of renaissance that you're seeing right now. Um, and then some of the guys that I uh, worked on Goodman Games with basically used to razz me a lot. And there was during the era of fourth edition, I remember this one experience where we went to the, it's called the D&D experience. Now it's called Winter Fantasy, but it's basically a con up in uh, Wisconsin um, that happens every January. And we were there for 4E promoting some recent releases. And on that trip, Harley and Doug were both on that trip as well as some other people. And it was one of those like four to five day con trips where, you know, plenty of chatting happened along the way. And somewhere on that journey, no one of us had read much of, we didn't even use the word appendix in actually, nobody used that word, but but, you know, Harley was a big fan of a couple of the authors, and Doug was a big fan of a couple of the authors, and some of the other guys were a big fan of a couple other authors. And over the course of that trip, I heard so many great names that I, I was like, I got to read some of these fantasy authors. And that was around the time, I think that might have been 2009, maybe 2008, but around the time that the, 
you know, the OSR wasn't quite booming, but was you, you started to hear references to Appendix N online, and there was a sort of renaissance of interest. And somewhere around that trip, I decided, oh, I should check out, I should check out this Robert E. Howard guy. You know, they say he's good. <laughs> <laughs> this Fritz Library, I wonder what that's about. Um, and then one thing led to another, and I wound up, re- you know, reading a whole lot of it. But that was sort of the beginning of my interest in it. And I, I think collectively, the beginning of me and several of the other guys realizing that even though we each either seen very small amounts or perhaps larger amounts, there was so much great stuff out there that not one of us had ever sort of collectively read all of it. Mm-hmm. So and, I have a question. Do you have, sure. were there any big surprises for you in reading the appendix N? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of constant. I mean, the first is just so much of D and D is so clearly lifted from it. You know, um, when you just read through these things and you're like, Oh, you know, Gygax didn't invent that spell at all. He literally <laughs> took this bit of text from Jack Vance, you know, or whatever. Like there's so much, I remember reading, um, Edgar Rice Burroughs, like the first or second Mars novel where he actually uses the term fighting man. And it was mm-hmm. the first time I ever saw that. Like nobody uses that word. I was like, Oh, that's why the first class was called fighting man. You know, like first I think just realizing how clearly D and D came from it was, was a big revelation. Um, and then realizing that our modern interpretation of genre is really just a modern interpretation. Like there was no breakdown between horror and fantasy and science fiction. They, they went through different terms over the years, but it was just this one giant swirling pool of adventure mm-hmm. stories or, or scientification, which was one word they used at one point, but just different eras of, of uh, I don't know, splitting it up into separate things the way we do nowadays was not at all how it used to be. It was still right. new and fresh and nobody had to find the words for it. It was just a whole bunch of cool stuff to read. Right, right. Um, and, and, yeah, that was probably the first impressions. And at what point did you realize that you had to get to the bare metal again and sort of reintroduce this back into gaming? Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that that was a, you know, it, it wasn't like a specific goal per se, but there was, I honestly, if fourth, if D and D fourth edition had done a lot better, DCCRPG might never have come to be, you mm-hmm. know, D and D fourth edition came out and that was controversial for many other reasons. And frankly, I don't want to open up that Pandora's box, but um, it, it, after an initial sort of pop, it basically stopped selling because, frankly, most people didn't like the game. So it, it just wasn't selling anywhere. In Goodman Games, we had sort of ridden that, you know, hitched our horse to that wagon. Um, and so there came a time when I realized the product line that I'd currently released was not selling particularly well. Mm-hmm. And I needed to do something else. And sales were so bad on 4th edition, and it, and it would take me so long to come up with something new. I, at one point, decided, like, you know, forget this. I'm just going to do what I like. You know, like there's not a clear thing out there to do. Like there's no D and D that's working. I'm just going to make the game I want to play. And, and there were many elements of that and it involved a lot of work with, with Harley and Doug and some other people as well. But we basically just set out to make a game that we really wanted to play. And there were so many, it was just sheer chance, but I was reading appendix into the time. And there's so much cool stuff in there that like, it was really hard to put into the D and D that I knew. And I guess just one thing led to another. Right. Right. And, and to extent that you specifically expressed that in your, section about Appendix N in DCC that even you weren't trying to emulate original Dungeons and Dragons. You weren't trying to emulate a D20 game. Um, and in some regards, you maybe were getting closer or getting closer to the experience of Appendix N than even original Dungeons and Dragons did explicitly, maybe by cutting away sort of the war game roots or just focusing on the, the literature as such. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Because in the same way that Appendix N now is divided into genres, but came from a time when there were no clear divisions, you know, D&D, we now clearly state, oh, this is a war game, or this is a tabletop miniatures game, or this is a role-playing game, or we even get into little slices below that. Whereas at the time D&D originated, um, there actually wasn't that term. The first use of the term role-playing game, as I recall, was on the cover of Metamorphosis Alpha, which came out after D&D. So they, they didn't even have these ways of describing games. And so I feel like Gygax and Artisan were 
you know, uncovering, there was so much to uncover that they didn't have enough bandwidth to, you know, worry about figuring out specific things. It was all fresh. Whereas now 20, 25, 30 years later, we've developed the D20 rule system, which is just a clever, easier way to manage a lot of things. You know, we figured mm-hmm. out ascending armor class. Like there's all these right. things that got figured out along the way that generally kind of make a little more sense, you know? And I think that I was able to take advantage of that evolution in game design and sort of understanding of where, um, how we call things, certain things. And this is a role-playing game. And I'm not going to worry about the line between this and a war game. Um, and just focus on uncovering what's cool in the literature without having to also figure out all these other things. Sure. Now, one thing I would just like to say, because I I feel like I can't go and record this episode without saying this, but like Joseph Goodman, like you're really the reason this podcast even exists. You know, the reason why Hoy and I started doing this podcast is we were meeting up in real life doing the Appendix N book club. But the reason why the original Appendix N book club, the in-person version of it existed was because when my D&D group folded, I really wanted to start playing DCC RPG in New York and I couldn't find people to play it with. And I'm like, I know, I live in a city of 8 million people. I know there are people who want to play this game. I just can't find them. So I started the meetup group, the Dungeon Crawl Classics NYC meetup group. But when I started it, I was like, Appendix N is, at, is, is so much at the core of what DCC RPG is. And I was realizing just how little of it I had read. I had really only read basically Tolkien uh, and a little bit of Lovecraft and Howard that I decided to start the Appendix N book club because it just felt like I couldn't, have this DCC RPG meetup group if I wasn't also exploring the appendix end at the same time. And that turned into this podcast. So I have a ton of respect and gratitude for you. So thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks I, to you guys. I'm glad it had that, uh, that effect on you and your life. It, it's right. funny. I was reading an article recently that I'll eventually publish, but Janelle Jackways wrote it. And it's about some of the things she did back in the era of, you, you know, she was instrumental in judges guild, but before that basically created a zine that was the first real D and D zine or tied for first, depending on how you look at it. But she wrote this article about what she called making history. And she's like, when you make history, it doesn't, you're not like doing like, I'm going to go make history. You know, there's not like a, you don't do anything special. And it just, it turns out later that was kind of an important moment, you know, and at the time that DCCRPG was, was happening, all this work was happening. It didn't feel good at the time at all. It felt awful. I mean, sales were horrible. You know, I had a business that I was trying to sustain and uh, D&D fourth edition, just the bottom fell out. And there came this time, you know, I think about how I spend, I spend my time in the company, right? I can spend my time on marketing stuff or product development stuff or writing stuff or whatever. And there's certain ways to spend my time. And it got to the point where spending my time on most things was essentially unproductive. There was because the core product line of D&D fourth edition was just so poorly, it was just doing so poorly. So I decided the only, you know, what the heck, if I'm not going to make any money doing this, I might as well do what I love. And that was frankly the best business decision I ever made. It worked better than anything that came before it. So to, to a certain extent now, like I, uh, as much as I appreciate that feedback and that's great, I try to hide from it. Like I think what mm-hmm. actually works really well for me now is just to ignore the outside world and spend more time talking to some of the other guys who are working on interesting things. And uh, like, I don't, I don't, I actually have a Facebook account. I don't know how to use it. I don't <laughs> log on to anything. I try to get other people to handle all that stuff. And uh, I just try to keep focusing on what I love, you know, and hopefully that comes across. Cause that is a, I don't know. That seems to be the answer to making cool products that people seem I, to appreciate. I think you've really tapped into something because more than any other sort of established rule set, the DCC has become many things to many people. I mean, there's all the stuff like David Beatty's uh, Dark Trails. There's uh, the post-apocalyptic both sort of straight and done completely weird. There's space gaming reiterations. And so you've really tapped into something. So even to the point where some people are not necessarily looking at the appendix and roots, but just looking at it, like, wow, this is just really powerful. Um, it, it allows me to express the thing that I want to express in a way that is, you know, 
uh, mechanically valid, but also is with a lot of flow and, and joie de vivre, for a lack of a better word. Um, so I think that's that's a great thing, and it, it's it's tapping into that ethos of OSR, but with sort of more of a without again thirty years of cruft on top of it necessarily yeah. to kind of cut through. <laughs> totally. So, well, so thank you. We'll we'll stop our fanboying now and yeah. start chatting about uh, a merits the moon pool. So thank you, Joseph. So yeah, thanks for bringing us back. <laughs> absolutely. So before we do, let's look at our high Gaxian word of the day, and the word of the day today is malefic. Malefic, and malefic means causing or capable of causing. Wait, causing or capable of causing? Yep, that's what it says. Causing or capable of causing harm or destruction, especially by supernatural means. And I found the word malefic on the very first page of this story, where it says, Over the island brooded a spirit sullen, alien, implacable, filled with the threat of latent malefic forces waiting to be unleashed. So our word of the day is malefic. Joseph, do you have any candidates for our word of the day? You know, I could pick a lot of scientific terms or like odd words for frogs. But the one that caught my attention was Sumerian that he uses, I think, twice in here. And, uh, you know, nowadays you see that all the time and everybody thinks it's a reference to Conan. And I didn't even realize it was a standalone word until I checked this and it was published in 1918. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure that Robert E. Howard was like a child at that time. And then I checked and he was. And, uh, you know, I looked it up and apparently it also means, you know, it's a mythical people living in darkness, essentially. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even realize that had a word or a meaning independent of Conan novels. So I was excited to learn that. And I should have known that because I read this before, but I guess before I just assumed it was a Conan reference. And now I'm a little, I leveled up a little bit and realized that wasn't a Conan <laughs> reference. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a Stygian darkness and Sumerian darkness and both Stygia and Sumeria are both places in the Conan universe. So that's kind of fun yeah. and interesting. Um, so yeah. Joseph, having just kind of gone through the moon pool again, what did you what did you originally think about it, and what did you think about your revisit? Yeah, good question. You know, when I first read it, I was like swimming in appendix and stuff, and it was exciting just to just to be exposed to all these inspirations. You know, now that I reread it, I mean, the whole lost world element is so strong, and the sort of uh, supernatural power of light, you know, like so many elements of it are these weird magical powers of the lost people and um, the lost continent of Mu and the elements of the the moon sort of possibly erupting out of the earth. Like there's so many cool parts to this, but when I reread it, I I, I was mostly challenged by Merritt's writing, which was, you know, <laughs> right. he said, he's got a lot of words, man. Like you could cut, if I were the editor on this, I would cut like 25% of this word count, you know? It's definitely does not flow as well as some of the other books that I have read that the Nixon. in. No, it right. does not. Right. Yeah. The words I wrote down while I was reading it was impenetrable and exhausting for his prose style. Because <laughs> <laughs> actually, if you guys don't mind for a moment here, there was one particular, there were two sentences in a row where I just had to mark it down because I'm just like, Really? So on page 171, and oh, and actually we didn't discuss our versions of the book, so we'll do that in just a second. But on page 171 of the version of the book that I'm reading, this is two sentences. Springing up through that polychromatic flood, myriads of pedicles, slender and straight as spears, or soaring in spirals, or curving with undulations gracile as the white serpents of Tanit and ancient Carthaginian groves, and all surmounted by a fantasy of spore cases and shapes of minaret and turret, Domes and spires and cones, caps of Phrygia and bishops' miters, shapes grotesque and unnameable, shapes delicate and lovely, sentence one. They hung <laughs> high poised, nodding and swaying like goblins hovering over Titania's court, 
Cacophony of Cathay accenting the flower maiden music of Parseval, bizarrier of, of the angled fantastic beings that people the Javan pantheon watching a bacchanal of Horis in Muhammad's paradise. <laughs> what? <laughs> I, I can't follow that. I'm sorry. <laughs> Ironically, that was one of the passages that I was more able to follow. And <laughs> 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 but yeah, I realized we did skip over the part where we discuss which version of the book that we're reading. So I'm re- currently reading, or I, the version that I read is the 1961 paperback, which has this strange little cover where it's just like four dudes oh. standing, I'm guessing, at the Crimson Sea at night, or perhaps they're on the island before they went into the moon pool. And you can kind of see a um, kind of an Easter Island sculpture in the background. Um, Joseph, which version of the book were you reading? First, I have to say, I've never seen that version that you have. That's kind of cool to see a new one out there. Oh, cool. Uh, so the one I got, so I, I actually had, so I actually own, this is Fantastic Novels, the 1948 editions. Ooh, so cool. I, I own the, this was the first time it was reprinted after uh, some, I forget the exact, but after many years of being out of print, like 30 or 40 years or so. Um, and I wanted to read these editions, but frankly, uh, it, the paper's so old, you know, I, after a couple pages, I realized I would destroy it. So I bought, this is from, who published this? Altus Press does a reprint. What I like about this is it's so, – so the, the story was originally published as two separate stories, The Moon Pool and then Conquest of the Moon Pool. And as I've since learned, they originally had a German bad guy. We'll talk about this at some point. Mm. Whether you guys had the editions with the Russian bad guy or the German bad yeah, guy. Yeah, we have the, the Russian bad guy. The Russian, yeah. yeah, the Russian bad guy. Yeah. Okay, I got the German guy. Oh. So <laughs> I'm sure not much changes other than his name, Von Heldsdorp. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, this is the original edition that had the German bad guy and was two separate novels as opposed to being one separate novel. And it's also cool because it has the Virgil Finley illustrations and it has the maps. I don't know if you, you guys had the maps. Mine does no not have the maps. Ours. Maps would be great. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that at some point. You got me wondering what edition Gygax read. This is one of the very few appendix in books I've seen that actually has maps that accompany some of the explorations and make them easier to follow. And it made me wonder if he'd read that and that influenced how he you know, wound up putting maps in the D&D. Yeah, and mm-hmm. you sent us some of the maps too, and some of them actually kind of look like dungeon maps. It's not just a map yeah. of the, the, the neighboring countries or something like that, which we'll sometimes right, see with exactly. the Conan stories. Yeah, yeah. I, I do have to say maps would have been great because I definitely had a hard time sort of uh, relating all these various spaces to each other mm-hmm. in, in the book. And I have the uh, Wesleyan early science fiction, uh, so Wesleyan College, and it actually has some of the Virgil Finley illustrations. Oh, cool. Uh, oh, but, cool. It, but it is the, uh, it is the, um, the latter um, combined text as opposed to the one that you're reading, Joseph, which is the original novellas. Yeah, And I did actually read just like the first page, like the Kindle sample of the original novella that you have there. And it is actually quite different the beginning of the um, of how it stands in the combined novella, the combined book. So um, it's it's more of a confessional, I think, in the one that you have, that very first page, yeah, whereas definitely. this one is, is more like um, almost like a scientific journal on the first page. So yeah, that's, interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Now, do you know do you know when they were combined? And because it sounds like he did a fair amount of rewriting when he combined them. So I think he published the first story in 1918, the next story that same year or later. And then in 1919, there was a hardcover version from Putnam, and which was actually apparently his preferred text. And then Liverite, which I believe was the British publisher, is when the German was turned into a Russian. 
Uh, that was the heart of the Red Scare there. And that's um, was is the text that has come down to us, but is actually not his preferred text, apparently. He, he's apparently had wrote a couple of letters to people saying, oh, I wish he'd been able to find a copy of the Putnam version and not the, the Liverite version, which is the one that everybody is now reading, apparently. So um, so at some point, I may have to go back to that Altus version just to do a sort of, I don't know if I could actually read the, reread the whole thing, but sure. at least a few sort of <laughs> <laughs> you know, comparisons there. But that seems to be have been the... Um, sort of the divergence points. And Merritt was known for constantly tinkering with his work. Um, not always for the better, I guess. Sure. I, I don't know. You know kind of a um, George Lucas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, he did actually get, a, I mean, we, we sort of started this project backwards, right? So we read some like Creep Shadow Creep and stuff, and that was much more straightforward sort of film noir crime writing. It was still some lush parts, but there definitely were. not to the extent of the moon pool. But I'd heard a lot of people complain about how dense Amerit's writing is. And when I read Burn Witch Burn and Creep Shadow Creep, I was pretty surprised about the complaints because it really doesn't come across that way with those two stories. Uh, little did you know. And then we went back to the beginning. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so Hoy, Joseph and I have had a chance to kind of briefly talk about what we thought about the moon pool. What are your thoughts on this book? Um, I just at certain point had to give myself over to atmosphere because if I was trying to relate like scenes to each other, it was a little hard. Like I said, I had a hard time geographically sort of locating stuff. I just said, okay, we're in this scene now. Um, and uh, they deliberately talk about how time is very strange down there, right? It seems to be any kind of mythic underworld story has time uh, becomes very strange, right? Um, but I did like some of the things where he sort of relates back to you know, he starts calling these people, they're clearly human, right? But these people under there, the dwarves and the elves, right? And, and, it, and the gnomes. I can see like, and gnomes. Um, and, and, you know, this is leaving aside the frog creatures, which is great, you know, but um, so I felt like in terms of atmosphere, in terms of sheer invention, it was there, but to, if you don't give yourself over to it, it's, it's a tough sledding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So I will say, I think his action scenes are actually pretty good. Like mm-hmm. I, I went through phases. There were stretches where I really didn't want to put it down, you know, when I got into some of the action scenes. But the interior point, his descriptive ability is just so like ornate, yeah. you know, there's so much to it. And that part becomes hard to read. But I will say, you know, I believe it's actually this title. He was a bestseller in his era. And I believe this one sold over a million copies in his wow. era. Um, his books collectively sold something like seven or eight million copies during his lifetime. It, you know, and some of this might just be us a hundred years later casting judgments on, you know, basically old English, you know, mm-hmm. just, or a modern version of old English. So I, I think the story underneath the writing is great. And there's, you know, if, if, if you rewrote it or edited it heavily to a modern writing style. Um, and the other element that I think is interesting is that, Jeff, the passage you read, the impenetrable passage, I started taking notes at one point as to how many times he references essentially sort of legends and lore and myths of different cultures. Mm-hmm. And I wound up, you know, his character Goodwin is supposed to be this um, well-read, you know, intellectual academic who constantly, I don't know if your version said the footnotes. There's actually yes. footnotes in my version mm-hmm. where he yeah. Yeah, goes yeah. into like botanical <laughs> esoterica. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, that's the character. But then as the author, Merritt essentially must have been really well-read in Legends and Lore because a lot of the references he makes that become impenetrable are because I'm not personally familiar with Persian mytholo- you know, mythology or this little niche of Greek mythology. I eventually made a list of like all the random references to, to crazy, you know, global mythologies that I have just not read. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if there's some element too, where he either expected the reader to be familiar with, or, you know, was putting on airs and assuming we're all a member of the Academy of whatever, and are familiar with all these mythologies. Um, Cause it did feel like he just wrote it almost like 
I don't know if it was a joke or just deliberately trying to, you know, assume the reader has read a tremendous amount of material in this genre. Sure. I think I think a little of both to actually literally present Goodwin as he would have been, you know, sort of the sort of yeah. uh, slightly pretentious academic. Um, yeah. And it's funny because the version I have is actually from an academic press and it has a ton more footnotes in the back from the actual editor oh. <laughs> <laughs> right? about some of the mythology <laughs> and some of the botany. Apparently all the botany stuff is accurate too. So apparently he was an amateur botanist and he was really into studying oh. poisons and stuff like that on top of everything else. So <laughs> Wait, so your version has footnotes on the mythological references? Mythological and some of the bot- uh, botany references and some of the physics references oh. in the back too. So <laughs> I'll have to check that out. That's cool. That's yeah, funny. Yeah. One thing that I thought was interesting about this book was the weird choice of the protagonist because it really seems like in most most of the pulp stories i've read larry would have been our protagonist the man who the two women are fighting over in the underworld um (laughs) but instead we're just kind of with the scientist who's watching this happen uh which also we kind of experienced a little bit with burn witch burn and creep shadow creep too where the the main character of those stories also wasn't really the one who was in the middle of all of the action sometimes which is an interesting choice for a protagonist. I mean, he's, he's really an observer. So he's a first person while kind of also being third person in a right, sense. Right. But um, he does make those references to, I think he calls it Minerva, but basically being, you know, his mistress's science or his mistress's Minerva, you know, and she's a jealous mistress. And, you know, <laughs> and he talks about how Larry's like a full head taller than him and basically kind of hunky and he's not, and he blames it all on science. So yeah. some, <laughs> it gives him a perspective, which I think is funny. But you're right. That is an interesting choice. It's not the typical heroic, swashbuckling, you know, fist-swinging pulp kind of mm-hmm. guy. Right, right. I wonder yeah. what that says something a little bit about merit. I mean, he was clearly, um, as a journalist and editor, so sort of sometimes has to be sort of outside of the story, even though he's recounting it. And that's sort of maybe the role that he casts, you know, Goodwin and the various other, you know, narrators that he has into his books. Yeah, good point. He was clearly very learned in a sort of that almost in the same way that Gygax was, you know, that he was, he just like, whatever interested him, he would get into very, very deeply. And maybe a lot of gaming people are, you know? Yeah, yeah. I can't um, relate to that at all. <laughs> I know nothing about that. <laughs> As I work my way through 290 Appendix N books. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, but maybe he had just enough where he couldn't convincingly cast himself um, in the way that, say Robert E. Howard could cast himself as Conan to a certain extent that Merritt couldn't cast himself as Larry or, you know, a more overtly heroic character. Some of the stuff that I couldn't quite figure out myself that I would love to see your guys' opinion on is there were some moments where I couldn't tell if a Merritt was being funny or not. And specifically where we would have entire sections redacted by the society because they didn't want to reveal the secrets uh, and like basically yes. like drive mankind mad with the secrets of, you know, this crazy technology. And, but it's, it's done in kind of a Barosian way, which is kind of like seems very kind of flip and silly, which seems like Amer is intentionally trying to be funny, but I also couldn't quite tell if he was or not. What do you, what, what intention do you think was under there? I didn't read humor. Mm-hmm. It does. Now that we're talking about this, it does reinforce that aspect of Goodwin being this sort of, you know, pedantic scientific observer as opposed to man of the action. Um, but I didn't interpret it as being funny. I just thought of it as part of the way he decided to structure the narrative. Right. I mean, I do think with merit, there's definitely sort of that precursor to Lovecraft's things. Man was not meant to know yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and there is that specific point about his biography, which to this day, nobody really knows where he had to leave Philadelphia sort of in the middle of the night when he was a, a young reporter for a year, he, they sent him to Mexico because he'd seen something he wasn't supposed to see. Um, nobody knows if it was like a political scandal, some kind of crazy murder or something, but he was packed off to Mexico and that's where he sort of, 
learn to appreciate sort of like um you know ancient cultures because we're hanging around like the mayan ruins and stuff like that yeah um, oh, and so to this day he never said anything about it um where no one's got good information about it um but i would presume that there's a sort of little element of paranoia that he likes to sort of you know play off of interesting you know i um the the whole thing is set at the moon door which is set in Natal, which is this whole you know island in polynesia now that we have the benefit of Google, I Googled that. I don't know if you guys did too, but it, it's a real ruin. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. Yeah, Smithsonian did an article on it a couple of years ago. And it so it made me realize, in my version, there's this map. This map is accurate. This map is an actual place. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't, I'm sure there's not a moon door. But like all the other features he describes are real. <laughs> and he did this in 19, or he published it in 1918. And there was no, I mean, the only way he got this information, I'm sure, was to visit it. And I've seen discussions of his, apparently he was a bit of a world traveler and saw a lot of ancient sites. So to your point, Hoy, I mean, it's quite possible. I don't know enough about his biography, but he probably did visit this Polynesian ruin and that sort of spawned some of this based on his own actual explorations. Mm-hmm. One of the things that really cracked me up in the text, you know, reading it from a 2019 perspective, is when they find the moon door and they just like in this like beautiful ruin and they, they try to open it and they can't. So they rig it with explosives <laughs> <laughs> and even that won't open the ruin. So now I'm curious, did the real A. Merritt go to this ruin and just like rig it with explosives? <laughs> that is it. That's a classic D and D move. That's like right out of nights right. at the dinner table, you know, <laughs> right. <laughs> I blow it up. right. Yeah. yeah. There's definitely that. There's, there's definitely that balance of like, it belongs in a museum, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Um, no, I think it's, he's, 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 uh, in many ways, I mean, there's, I guess, a lot more to learn about A. Merritt, but he's in many ways as fascinating as a character as any other author out there. Maybe more fascinating than Howard. I mean, Howard's imagination was limitless, but he was stuck in cross planes where Merritt actually got to live a lot of this stuff, yeah. which is kind of fascinating to me. And that's one of the things that I'm loving about this project is even when the act of reading the book, like I, I did not enjoy for the most part the actual act of reading the moon pool because the prose was so challenging, but there is so much incredibly cool stuff in the moon pool that I'm really glad that I read it in the past tense. <laughs> <laughs> now there's something to that. Like there's, there's a, uh, the, the ideas in there are awesome. There's yes. this whole mythology. There's a lost world. There's a lost world with layer upon layer of history to the lost world. In addition to its impact on the present day, there's the fact that all this in his mind, at least exists coexistent with world war one. Like there's so much going on there. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, it, it just, I, I hesitate to say this, but perhaps somebody should go back and like re-edit some of these classic novels just to get across the core points. Cause you could run a DD campaign that basically, or a DCC campaign that just mimics this entire novel that's good for a lot of sessions and nobody would, people wouldn't even think it was lifted off anything. It's so spectacularly imaginative, you know? Yeah. Right. Right. And this, and like all this great magic and technology that's specific yeah. to this universe uh, that, that he's created. It's, it's very cool. And I also love that the enemies we're facing are completely not the kind of villains or monsters we're used to encountering. Cause really yes. almost all of the villainous elements here um, all the scary things are like bells and rainbows and light beams. <laughs> and Dude, you're totally right. The biggest enemy is basically a flying rainbow bolt of light, you know? And exactly. Right, right. It sounds like bells when it flies around. Right. right. Angry bells and or happy the, bells or, yeah. Right. Cool. And, the, and the nine foot tall carnivorous frogs are the good guys. <laughs> <laughs> the, if both sides are led by basically beautiful women. One's blonde and one's right. red haired. But yeah, it's, it's yeah. just... 
No, you're totally right. I mean, that was one of the aspects of Appendix N that was fascinating to me is that we're all so used to, or at least there was an era where people, used to, you know, the dungeon master said orc, you know, and then everybody's mm-hmm. like, oh, an orc, you know, and, and you all knew what their weaknesses were for every creature and you knew the playbook. Yep. Even reading this now, having read it before, like, I have no idea what the shining devil is, you know, it's a weird light devil thing with seven colors that eats your soul and or something and sucks out your blood, believes your veins there. Like it's, it's cool. It's so mysterious. And he never quite explains any of it. You get a, at the very end, you get like kind of an explanation of the history of the world, but even then there's a lot of questions, you know? Right. Right. And, and this kind of idea of deep time, like deep, deep yes. time, right? This is like completely primordial. Like they, they came up from the inner core of the earth and that there was hints that there are still beings that are even more ancient that are still down there. Yeah. And it dates back to when the moon was part of the earth. I mean, he's literally going back eons in this thing, you know, and then fast forwarding to the present. It's cool. Yeah. It's very cool. And this is probably a good time for us to transition the conversation over to the gaming side here. And my very first impression here is before I started reading the appendix and the two things I was not expecting to encounter much of was adventuring parties and dungeons. In my mind, these po- there probably weren't too many of these things in the Appendix N, but in the Moon Pool, we've got, we definitely have both of those, and especially we have, we have dungeons and spades. Right. But what other kind of things do you guys think uh, from the Moon Pool inspired early D&D? I mean, I think this whole mythic underworld that, yeah. you know, that later on becomes Vault of the Drow or, or some of these other, you know, I guess that's the sort of primordial mythic underworld as far as official D&D. Um, there's definitely that. Uh, as you say, there's the adventuring parties. Uh, factions, right? Factions is always something that we go back to that as as something that should be important in sort of old school style yeah. play, right? Um, yeah. Uh, Joseph, any, any particular thoughts? I agree with all that. I agree with the dungeon point, especially the the initial, uh, I mean, the very early part where they're basically trying to get, you know, basically open a secret door to navigate the space behind the secret door. Then there's that stretch where one of them finally decides to, they're in the chamber of the moon pool and somebody says, let's look and see what's behind the pool itself. Then they discover this great cavern behind it. Then there's yeah. another secret door. Then there's the secret elevator. I mean, it really is. <laughs> and if you were to map this, it's basically like a hallway, one big room and another secret door. Like it's quite small, but he turns it into this whole narrative that covers quite a while in the book, or at least it you know, feels like a bit of an adventure. Um, and that's just classic D&D dungeon crawling. And it's how you can make basically a simple encounter really exciting you know just throwing in a couple secret doors the weird pool and some darkness and um you know the whole like where he had to push the there was like the ivy uh the pattern yeah he had to push like the little petals on the ivy at five of them at the right time at you know the same arrangement and it opened the secret elevator door and you know then they didn't realize it was an elevator until it started taking off it i mean that whole sequence and then the whole like the cliffside lifts up and they walk under then it closes down and nobody can figure out how to reopen it like that's basically pure dungeon crawling that first section in the book (laughs) <laughs> right and this is also literally like um a second party right like the first party got tpk <laughs> you totally right. <laughs> <laughs> they follow in like he failed the other guys yeah, came back exactly. with better equipment yeah <laughs> <laughs> i noticed this also in the um especially in the merit book just sort of a level of negotiation um which doesn't happen a lot necessarily in sort of more modern heroic fiction um you know the their friend the the green dwarf who is at first not at all you know he's described as being sort of looking sort of malicious uh but ultimately becomes part of their faction um and radar radar, yeah yeah, exactly um so there's that element and just bringing the party together instead you know it's all very coincidental on how they meet olaf and how they meet larry but still bringing the party together 
in sort of this funny way. Oh, here's your scene. Here's 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 Larry just sitting on the wreck of his plane, smoking a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> you know? No, that's you know? a great point about the adventuring party. This is one of the yeah. few appendix in novels that really has an adventuring party, almost with classes. You know, Olaf is the the hulking barbarian. Larry right. is the I don't know what you call him. You know, kind of a fighter, but the lucky fighter, the you right. know good one. The narrator is very much either the wizard or the cleric, depending on how you look at it. You know, in terms of the role right. he fills. Yeah. Right. Right. I agree. I mean, Larry definitely has a uh, high charisma, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. He's, he's almost a, he's almost a bard slash lucky fighter yeah. type. You know, he's always talking about the, you know, Irish mythology, but I like how he's always calling everyone else superstitious. But, <laughs> 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 it's like, no, no, fairies are real, but you guys are superstitious. Yeah. What's going on with you guys? <laughs> One thing that I think is interesting is that Gary Gygax specifically states that a Merritt was one of the most influential people on yes. him in his writing of AD and D and while I'm reading this, it made a lot of sense to me because here we've got, you know, we have sleep spells, we have invisibility cloaks. Yep. Even though they don't behave the way that we that they do in AD&D, we have elves and dwarves and gnomes and paladins. Like these kinds of this vocabulary is being used that I, I, I could easily see him like seeing the word paladin and underlining that and be like, oh, I'm going to use that and turn that into something. Yep. Um, and it's what's interesting is although the protagonists are or modern day, at least at the time that it was written, they're modern day protagonists. It still very much felt like this could have taken place in kind of any time or in kind of that kind of middle ages kind of world where a lot of D and D stuff tends to take place in, um, or kind of an Avancian world where we've got ancient technology floating around. Cause also in this underworld, you've got these kind of weird magic car things right. that are kind of technology that hover above the ground. Right. She's got uh, that disintegration gun, which, which could easily just yes. be a wand. Yeah. You know, um, I like how the disintegration gun kind of takes time, though. So the actual revolver is actually a lot faster than actually using the disintegration gun because it takes him like three minutes to dissolve. Yeah. <laughs> and know? how the revolver, at some point he stops using the word revolver or gun. I, I've heard yeah. to go back and check what he uses, like, but because like, they start referring to it as the... I feel like they called the it the fire or something like yeah, that. Thing yeah, thing that spits fire. Like it becomes just a magic item at some point in the book, you know? <laughs> and I love that the monster's hoard is actually a collection of people that it's kidnapped <laughs> over the over the centuries and the millennia. Yeah. A bunch of zombies, basically. Because when they do attack, right. they're yeah. just mindless trudging forward, yeah, with no thoughts. Yeah, that's basically his hoard. Is the bodies right. of all those he's slain. Right. And, and this actually comes back to the point of you mentioning how the action worked really well, because, you know, that was kind of gruesome at the end, you yeah. know, that the, the, the bodies just all collapse and then they get thrown into the red pool where the jellyfish kind of just dissolve them. You know, it's 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 actually yeah. it, it like goes there. Right. And it goes there with Olaf doesn't get his family back. Right. They're gone. He's not getting. I know back, that part was right? actually sad. Like there's quite a few yeah. sections that are a little they tug at the heartstrings, you know, and, right. and people always die in Conan novels, you know, and you don't. I never get sad about it, but, but this one right. you know, makes me a little sad because I'm a little connected right. to the character somehow. Right, right. Sure. I mean, even though that they're stock types, it's it's they're they're well drawn. It's like, oh, I know who exactly that guy is. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. So. And bringing up the gruesome death in the Crimson Sea also made me think about that very AD&D moment in the moon pool where there's that gunfight and they're kind of in that and and he ends up like shooting some kind of a giant mushroom or something. And then the spores go flying everywhere. (laughs) Right, right. And then that scene ended up becoming super gruesome. But how many monsters are there in the in the AD&D monster manual where they've got like spores that shoot off and do horrible things to you. Well, and, and then that seat right before it, I, I got to look up, I'm flipping through my copy. They basically had the big dragon or the dragon worm. 
right. yeah. as they're going through that the segment. And it, you know, it, if we were a modern, if we were modern writers writing our little fantasy novel, the battle against the dragon worm would be like a chapter or two, you know, a major encounter. He covers it in like two paragraphs, you know, like I felt like I missed something. Um, but <laughs> it, it's just interesting how the, the, the way he approaches fantasy is so different from the modern era because the things that yeah. would make up our D and D adventure, if we turn this, you know, the dragon worm fight and then the, the mushroom spore fight, that would be like two hours of the game. And here it's basically yeah. like a page or two and you passed it. But those are, you're right. Those are quintessential D and D encounters right there. That whole stretch of, mm-hmm. of the narrative. And, and that whole time just before the dragon fight, when they when uh radar again is telling them to keep your heads low when you're crawling through this trench, you yes. know, and basically, you know, you know, stealth rolls basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, this one actually has a really cool, if I can find it, really cool uh, Finley illustration for that one too. And I guess that's also an interesting thing that he championed Virgil Finley. And I think he was largely responsible for Finley and Hans Bach's careers. Um, so for people who are into like pulp illustrators, that's another thing that we owe uh, a merit is that, that um, you know, he kind of knew talent when he saw it himself. For sure. Yeah, the version, um, the fantastic novels here. Yeah, there you go. That's the guy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's the dragon ish. And I think there's actually an interesting. Mine has, I think there's might even be another illustration as well. I'll have to flip through mine. I believe there was one from another angle. I wonder if they, since I'm, I wonder if there was a certain suite of illustrations and each publication reprinted some, but not all. Probably some, yeah. There's the one at the end with the uh, the creature from the actual the actual dweller in the uh, the dweller in the mist. Or the, yeah, yeah. Here we go. I have the same one or, of your previous ones right here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Those are really cool. I've not seen those. In the back of this fantastic novels, there's actually um, so this was, I believe, the first time it was reprinted in its original form. But there's actually an ad for the brand new Virgil Finley Portfolio Series Three, which you can order. Oh, I mean, cool. it makes me want to mail off this form in my twenty-five cents. <laughs> <laughs> so get that, but <laughs> anyway, yeah, you're right. They're closely connected from an artistic perspective, and I don't know the name of the art. Actually, I guess it would be Finley. Yeah, it's Finley who did this. The image of a uh, Yolara with her kef and the, uh, and, uh, what are they called? The Akka behind the Akka. her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I love that painting. It's awesome. And I think if we wanted to use the moon pool as a adventure in D&D, we would definitely have a lot of fun. But I really do feel like, and I'm not just saying this because you're on the show, Joseph, I feel like DCC RPG would be an even better system to run something like the moon pool because specifically because of the patron mechanic. And we've got two really cool and really fun, exciting patron opportunities yeah. in the moon pool. You've got both the shining one and you've got the silent ones. Yes. And they definitely have their own agendas, their own personalities, and they provide the characters with very specific powers and abilities. DCC RPG seems really well suited to this kind of an adventure. Yeah, I would agree. I, and they even give them little missions, you know, like the silent ones speak into uh, the mind of... Um, Lachla, <laughs> the handmaiden. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, you're right. And there's a lot of aspects of this that you just want to, I don't want to define a lot of this too much. You know, the shining one, like yeah. I don't ever really want to know. I don't want it statted up. I don't want to know what that is. Like part of the mystery is God knows what that thing is with its seven little right, globes right. of color. And, you know, and why did he pick those colors? I kept asking myself, why does he have silver as a color? Nobody picks silver. You know, there's just <laughs> like, there's, you know, is there a different version that has eight colors? Like there's just so many odd things about it that I almost don't want it statted up. I wanted to keep the mystery and then somehow yeah. I would touch a little bit upon my game, but never fully be divulged just to definitely not to the players, mm-hmm. but not even to the judge. You know, there's just a lot of really cool stuff. Right. Right. Sure. I think that was one of the, um, 
things that they thought they were getting out ahead of and then ended up being a mistake when they started statting up like the deities and gods, demigods yeah. and heroes. And they, they knew they had to kind of do that and get out ahead of it, but they did it the wrong way by actually giving them stats. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I guess that's one of the challenges that you had creating the game, right? Like where do you stop in terms of the patrons and, and developing, you know, the spell, you know, example patrons and the patron spells and, and, you know, what is a good model to allow people to go forward um, cause that is one of the things that I think is the hardest to sort of, um, go forward in DCC is just the spells are so descriptive that that's probably, if you're trying to create a new spell, that's a lot of work, right. In, in my mind. Yeah, yeah. It was a lot of work writing for me and, <laughs> and some of the other guys who helped write them. Um, but you know, when I was a kid, I would always, and as a teenager, and even later on, I would take one or two examples. Like I never actually played D&D modules from the modules. I guess a lot of people did, but I would take something and then make it my own and then start making up my own adventures from it. Um, and something I tell the writers that I work with is that we are not, our target audience is not ourselves. Like we are the people who have the ability to make this stuff up. And a lot of people don't have that ability or don't do it in the same way. And so what we want to do is provide that exciting adventure for them to do, but know that most of the customer base is not going to be out there making their own modules, which is why they're paying for ours. You know, otherwise we'd be sure. out of business if everybody could make their own modules. But the cool part about the DCC community, I don't know what the exact ratio is, but let's say the D&D community, I don't know, 10% can make their own stuff and 90% would prefer to buy the published stuff. But the DCC community, it's got to be like 50% can make their own stuff or something. There's some huge percentage of this fan base that really takes that little bit of inspirational nugget and runs with it and comes back with something really cool in the form of a, a blog post or a, a zine or whatever. And I like that. So I think right. to your point, I like being able to just to show a little bit, you know, just enough to get people inspired and then they can take it and run with it and do the rest mm-hmm. themselves. Was that something yeah. you had anticipated when you were creating the game or was that a surprise to you in, in a certain extent? It was a surprise how much awesome content came in the form of third-party publications. I mean, I knew I wanted to facilitate that, which is why there's a license that's basically really simple and totally free, you know, just to make it possible. But I never thought there'd be as much out there as there is now. I mean, even the annual, which is finally coming out, whatever, like five or six years later. Um, the original mm-hmm. idea was to have one annual a year, you know, hence the word annual. <laughs> and then, you know, that would be all the new content that sort of got created by me or Harley or Doug or Mike or whoever right. in that year, you know. And right. it's basically unnecessary because the third-party community, I mean, we throw out a couple of modules which get created, but the third-party community makes so much cool stuff. that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's funny because I, I saw on the MeWe page the other day, somebody was asking about a Dwarven Cleric class. And what's funny is like, yeah, there, there, there exists at least two or three that I can think of in different third-party products. So not only is not only do you have an answer for just about any question you have right now, sometimes you have multiple directions that you can go in with yeah. it. You're looking and, for a Dwarven Cleric, then go ahead and go to Gygax Magazine or go to um, uh, crawl, the Crawl Zine. There, yep. are, there are multiple directions you can go. Mm-hmm. And there's a school of gaming where that would be a problem because you'd show up at the table and they'd be like, oh, you're wrong. You know, that, yes. that's not the version we're using here, or that's not the approved version, or that's not official. And one of the things that uh, that uh, Doug and I share in common is we don't like being told what to do, you know, which expresses <laughs> itself differently in our personalities. But for both of us, you know, it always really annoyed me when I'd go to places and they'd tell me, oh, we're, you know, that's not official, or you can't use that here. I'd be like, no, I can't. Screw you, you know. So that's part of the what I, lo- I love the fact that there's multiple Dwarven clerics and, and, you know, it's just a negotiation among the players and the judges of which one you're going to use or is it balanced or reasonable and so on. But the idea is that 
just make it your game, you know, and have fun playing it. It's not about which version is right, which version is official. Like I read Knights totally. of the Dinner Table, which by the way is on a rollway. Like if you haven't read it, the latest issue is great. But the yeah. one character, you know, who's always knows all the errata and is always arguing with the dungeon master about like this errata, you know, trumps your rules. And that's I don't want DCC to ever be that. Mm-hmm. Well, and I don't and I don't mean to say this in a way that is in any way shady, but that's one of the things that I love about DCC RPG is you can read a way a rule is written on page 53 and read the way it's yes. written again on page 87. And they sound like they're saying two different things. And sure, great. That just means do what you want to do with it. <laughs> no, you're exactly right. There's actually a couple inconsistencies in the rules that have been pointed out to me. Like we fixed all the true errata and so on. And it's, I feel like still every couple of months, like somebody emails me about like, hey, you know, this one and this one don't match exactly what you said. And I'm just going to leave it that way. It's like sure. enough people have played it and had fun with it that clearly it's not a problem. Nobody's being impeded <laughs> by it. So let's just keep rolling. Exactly. Uh, in the process of game writing, then with, obviously one of the things that you have to do is kind of decide where to stop. You know? <laughs> so so what, was the, what was the sort of, and, and, and what to include? So for example, now in the appendix and fiction, what were some of the major through lines that you thought were important to put in the game? And then what were the things that you thought were important to leave out? I know there's not a lot of wilderness rules, for example, in, in DCC, you know. Um, I mean, there are some, but there's yeah. not a lot. And and so those kind of things. There's no encumbrance rules, which is always a bugaboo for a lot of people. Yes. But, you know, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> so so what are some of those processes that were in your mind as you were sort of creating you know, DCC specifically or any kind of, you know, your general game design thought? Yeah, that's a good question. I had uh, stacked beside me d and I feel like I had the first edition, all the third, for all the f- second, I think first. So I, I had like a sort of a bunch of D&D reference books that I would sort of flip through as I was putting together notes. You know, I'd, I'd, essentially if something was well covered, I originally started with the assumption that everybody who plays DCC has played D&D or is playing D&D. So if something was well covered, I think there's even a part that says this basically like, you know, if you played enough D&D, you don't need to really, I'm not going to explain this stuff to you. You know, you can figure it out. So that, like, I mean, drowning rules, like how many versions of drowning rules do we need? And it's always overcomplicated, you know, like there's certain things that are, or like you said, wilderness, like it's basically covered everywhere. You slow down when you walk through the woods, like, do you really need another rule for that? So I figured like the experienced players who have done this so many times, like you just don't need to cover some of this ground again. Um, so that, so I, I, that's probably not as like scientific as you'd want, but basically if I felt like it was an old, tired topic, I wasn't going to spend time on it. And then I really didn't want to get into publishing more stats for orcs. The monsters chapter was like a big debate um, because you have to give people some example of what to do, you know? Yeah. But also I didn't want like another freaking monster manual because there's so many monsters out there that D&D has published right. over the last 40 years. So there was just enough. And I started with Android on purpose, which was kind of right. like a jab in the eye to all the people who said, you know, you know, science fiction and fantasy are two different things. No, Android, first entry in that, you know? <laughs> so it's kind of a, I don't know, it's just enough to make it playable and fun and give people ideas, right. but then not to dwell on the, you know, some of the topics have been beaten to, to death, right. you know? Right, right. Well, I like that you have specifically like four kinds of ape because that's pretty important to Appendix N. But <laughs> also no, fair. there was some but of my, that. <laughs> but my one bone to pick is there's no, there's no big cat in the in the oh. monster thing so just as a model you know just to sort of pick but other than that you know three kinds of giant snake that's terrific well then maybe in the dcc <laughs> right. annual volume two there can be a table to how to make your own unique big cat yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be striped for <laughs> right, there you here's go. your table Right, it has to be uh, you know using one of the weird dice, a D nine for exactly. uh, you know pelt. <laughs> so I'm curious, you know, we're talking about the moon pool from the perspective of D and D and DCC RPG, but what do you guys think playing the moon pool from the perspective of like Call of Cthulhu would be like? How 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 different would that change the tone? And assuming this is a, a written adventure, how different would it be playing this in DCC versus Call of Cthulhu? 
first of all, I'm glad you're bringing it back to Lovecraft because I'm, I'm sure you guys know this, but Merritt was one of Lovecraft's, was stated by Lovecraft to be one of his primary influences as an mm-hmm. author. Yep. And one of the things I noticed was, you know, Lovecraft is one of the very few authors who uses a lot of sounds in the way he writes, or at least one of the few that I think of. But there's all there's always like piping. I don't know what his deal is with piping, but like pipes <laughs> or all over his, you know, the sound of the bad guys always involve pipes. And I feel like it also involves, it's always wind instruments like pipes and like chimes and stuff. And yep. yeah, Merritt repeatedly talks about, like you said, the bells, the ringing, the chimes as the sound of the, the, you know, the, the dweller in the pool. Um, and it made me wonder to what, I have never encountered Lovecraft going into any kind of detail as to how Merritt inspired him. I'm sure that's out somewhere in his letters, but it made me wonder if it was the sound element or what element was it, but you're right. There's definitely a strong um, connection there. And I have to think on your question a little bit, but it would be a really different experience playing it as like the exploration or investigative approach as opposed to the more action-based one. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I think, um, I guess I also, without getting into edition wars, it probably changes a little bit between all the previous versions of Call of Cthulhu and the seventh edition, seventh slash pulp, because there is now a luck mechanic in Call of Cthulhu, which didn't exist before, right? Sort of pushing your mm-hmm. luck and, and being able to do something twice. Um, and then with the pulp Cthulhu, you know, your sanity, you're less likely to lose your sanity than in the early editions of Call of Cthulhu. Um, because they talk about like being stressed out and being worried and Throckmorton clearly has low sanity, but you know, you never really feel that Larry's in any, danger mentally but on yeah. the other hand olaf is probably hanging on with like a 20 sand yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, um so um and i guess it would work for call of cthulhu it's a little bit more human scale i mean they're they are not uh you know they don't have 800 hit points any of these characters right i mean olaf takes down a ton of the you know the the bad guy dwarfs at the end but he does ultimately succumb to his wounds yeah um you know and and Larry just doesn't get hit, but if he got hit, he'd be just as dead as anybody else. So. Sure, and Throckmorton <laughs> even tells Goodwin about his failed sanity check. On page 39, he says, Reason had left me. When it returned, I was far out at sea in our boat wholly estranged from civilization. A day later, I was picked up by the schooner in which I came to Port Moresby. Yeah, no, that that's there's a lot of Lovecraft elements here. I mean, I almost feel as if a lot of Lovecraft stories have that mechanic of you know, finding the uncle's old journals or finding grandfather's old papers, you know, and, and this is very much, this could very easily be, now I'm thinking if Lovecraft were to rewrite this, you know, but you could very easily twist this to be somebody finding the papers or the notes kept by Goodwin and Throckmorton, you know, and retelling this tale. And you you can really turn it into the next generation trying to journey after the moon pool based on this, these notes taken. Yeah, you could, you can totally see where some of the narrative structures sort of leaked into Lovecraft down the line. I don't have a specific citation for this, but I my think my feeling is that there is a sort of recursive influence where Moonpool influenced specifically the story of Call of Cthulhu, because that's, again, in the South Pacific part of it, which then turned around and influenced uh, Dwellers in the Mirage. And so there's a little sort of chain mm. of, of causality. And I think there was a... Um, one of those uh, round table, round robin novels that A. Merritt was involved in. I think Lovecraft had something to do with that. It was in the late thirties, but I'm, I'm, I could be wrong about that. So, like, where they each wrote a chapter, and then I think Merritt's thing was eventually taken out and became like its own short story. Oh, interesting! Uh, oh, interesting! Yeah. I don't know about that. It's, um, All right, so it's probably time for us to start wrapping up this conversation. So, uh, Joseph, is there any kind of one last thing you really wanted to chat about before we close this up? No, I think I'm good. Yeah, this is a good discussion. It's fun being on this podcast. You guys should do this more often. Oh, wait, you do. (laughs) 
my kind of one last thing is that I didn't expect for the Golden Girls to make an appearance. Uh, but on page 195, it says the Golden Girls' voices rang out high and in high pitched, tremulous, throbbing calls. So, hello, Golden Girls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, How about you, Hoy? Uh, I guess it was not a, a last thought so much as just noticing a through line again with Merit stuff that there is always a, um, a, in this case, she's blonde, but there's always a dark woman figure and a light woman figure in, yeah. in Merit stuff that we've read. Yeah. And, um, but that they each take aspects of each other because even so, you can see that um, Lock Lock can be merciless. She's when she threatens, uh, you know, when she comes and first speaking for the three, she's like, you know, you have three whatever these time periods are or else, you know, doom will come upon you. Yeah. Right. And then she zaps people with the, uh, sort of the fronds that are on that, you know, five, uh, divine weapon, thing. divine weapon. Yeah. Um, and so they, they partake of each other, but one is the sort of, they're just like flip sides of the same coin. And so that's an interesting through line. And I'm not sure how much you could do that in sort of modern day fiction without sort of like being a little bit more, um, uh, ironic about it or something like that, but it's, it's here. I guess actually there's some merit like uh what uh cannibal um moon slaves of the cannibal kingdom that was clearly some merit uh direction in there is there more merit that you want to bring into sort of like the the mainstream DCC uh you know product line Yeah you know I still want to actually do I've actually asked a couple people to essentially write uh an adventure version in the moon pool um it's basically in the pub- I think it actually is in the public domain at this point um and I think it'd be a really cool adventure uh but the people, the pit had a number of influences, but there's actually a merit short story called, I, I, I directly ripped off that title. It's called the people right. in the pit. Uh, and as, as I recall, the, it's actually been like eight or nine years since I read it, but there were also, now that I think about it, the sort of light theme in that story, the bad guys were these kind of balls of light. Right, um, right. Now you're making me want to go reread a bunch of merit. I, I also, through reading this discovered that Goodwin, the protagonist apparently also appears in the metal monster, which is another merit novel, mm-hmm. um, which apparently is a very, I was, informed a very loose sequel just featuring a couple of the same characters but i uh, with robots so that's important <laughs> yeah exactly exactly i may go research a little more merit after this but uh right right yeah and i think um the through the dragon wall that's sort of like that there was another merit short story so the, the dragon glass so there's that sort of yes in, yeah that kind of vibe there yeah. um yeah i think there's a lot of um there's still a rich vein to be uh, mined with merit if you can sort of cut through the thickets of prose i guess <laughs> but you know what's funny is you know Nobody complains about Shakespeare's prose. You know, I think part of it is we just have to recognize that 100 years of history is is quite a bit of writing evolution. You know, like the modern era of George R.R. R. Martin and the short clipped phrases, you, you know, it's just a different era of writing. But mm. the content underlying, it's, I won't name names, but there's somebody very important in the Goodman Games community and uh, who writes a lot of projects for me who, you know, hates merit and just can't make it through the prose. <laughs> and now that I've read it and had this conversation with you guys, I almost want to go back to him and be like, dude, just slog through it. This, you know, the, the story's great. Pretend you're reading Shakespeare. Like it's a bunch of weird words and odd sentence construction. And you got to have like a handbook mythology nearby. But by the time you're done, it's a great story. You know, it's just a go. different kind of writing from a long time ago. Well, Joseph, thank you very much for being on the show. Yeah. Thank you guys. This is a lot of fun. It's a, yeah, it was- you know, I have a, a lot of shelves of stuff and I'm, I'm always reading various things and a lot of it has to do with appendix in. So this is, it's fun to get a chance to, to talk about it a little bit. And uh, Hoy, how can people get a hold of us? Okay, as always, you can email us at appendix, appendix and book club at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n on Twitter. Uh, we're on MeWe, we're on Facebook, uh, appendix and book club on both uh, communities there. 
if you like us or just want to give us some feedback, also uh, on the podcatchers of choice, iTunes, uh, Google Play, uh, it helps people find us. So, And Jeff, a little bit more about our Patreon, if you will. Yes, we do have a Patreon now, and we are really excited that people are joining up. And I would like to quickly give a shout out to a few of our patrons. Thank you, Noah Green, Ray Otis, Eric Johnson, Raphael Beltrame, Vasily Kalaman, and Kurt Rosener. We couldn't do this show without you. Uh, Thank so, you guys. yeah, come check it out. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>